Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. just mention again that this is our Come With Joy Sunday. We invite families to stay together here in worship, and then we share communion together. Uh, but if you're more comfortable, we do have the, the, um, the uh, live stream that's playing in the social hall. So if that feels like a better space for your family, that's fine too. It's entirely up to you. As I have shared previously, one reason for using the narrative lectionary, which we began to do here at St. Paul's on September 11th, is the hope that we'd all be better equipped to see the themes that run throughout the pages of Scripture. As we explore today the Second Kings passage, which Todd read during the threshold moment, we're going to see how it connects back to Genesis 12, 1 through 9, which we explored on September 19th, or 18th rather. And then we're going to see how it connects forward to Luke 4, uh, when Jesus creates a real uproar by mentioning the healing of Naaman in his very first sermon. So let's first recall how both Judaism and Christianity trace their beginnings back to the call of Abram in Genesis 12. This is where God calls Abram, who is later known as Abraham, to be a blessing to all nations of the earth. And and then goes on in Genesis 12, 3 to say, in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So God intends that Abram will be blessed so that he will be a blessing to others beyond his own family and tribe. All nations and all families of the earth. Now, in my message for that Sunday, I said that a good litmus test for whether we're being faithful to God's call story is the question, Does my faith only seek to bless myself and those who are like me? Or does my faith bless others, even those who do not share my faith or my beliefs? Now, that question might be uncomfortable if we imagine that our faith is supposed to set us up as special recipients of God's favor over and against those who do not believe the same way that we do. And it is for this reason that like the character of Bruno in the Disney film Encanto, that it seems to have become a well-established rule by the time of Jesus that we don't talk about Naaman. Indeed, it is because Jesus violates this unwritten rule, and does talk about Naaman, that an incensed crowd sought to throw Jesus off of a cliff even before his ministry gets started. 
So now let's jump ahead to Luke 4. Now, if you've got a pew Bible and want to like, it's on page 61 of the New Testament, and you can follow along here. But at the beginning of Luke 4, in verses 1 through 12, Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness. And I think we're all pretty familiar with this story, how Jesus goes into the wilderness, fasts for 40 days, and then he's tempted by the devil. And then he emerges uh, from the wilderness, and he immediately goes uh, to his hometown of Nazareth, where he preaches his very first sermon. And I, I suspect we also know this story fairly well. Uh, Jesus, quoting from the Isaiah scroll, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the year of the Lord's favor is a time when, among all thing, uh, other things, all debts are to be forgiven. It comes from Leviticus. So after quoting this passage, Jesus begins to address a very rapt and initially impressed audience. He begins by saying that in him, the prophetic words of Isaiah are fulfilled. This is exciting testimony for the congregation who has gathered in the synagogue on that auspicious day. Jesus is identifying himself as the long-expected liberator, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. But as his sermon continues, Jesus says this, and I suspect we're not quite as familiar with this. He says, and I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time, and there was a great food shortage in the land, Yet Elijah was set, sent to none of them, but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. I don't think we know that part of the story very well. And there were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during that time, during the time of the prophet Elisha. But none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. And it is at that that Luke tells us everyone in the synagogue was filled with rage and rose up and drove Jesus out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. Why was Jesus' proclamation received so poorly? Well, the answer is really quite simple. As his sermon progressed, it became more and more clear to those who were listening that the good news was not limited just to the people of Israel. Jesus was not preaching good news of great joy for some people. Jesus was preaching good news of great joy for all people. Initially, 
the congregation had identified with being the poor and the oppressed because they were. Oh, that's not the right one, but that's okay. They are also captives in need of liberation from the Roman forces who are occupying their land. They are also economically impoverished. And so any debt relief would be very welcome. And so early on, the congregation sees themselves as beneficiaries of Jesus' gracious good news. But as the sermon goes on, it becomes more and more clear that Jesus' good news extends well beyond the boundaries of Israel. Indeed, it will include all nations and families of the earth, just as we saw in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. And not just descendants of Abraham. And this is why Jesus mentions the widow of Seraphath and Naaman the Syrian. They aren't Jewish. They're Gentiles. So it's the radical inclusiveness of Jesus' message that shocks and offends the people who had originally thought that Jesus was the best preacher they had ever heard. That is, until Jesus goes overboard and says that God's grace is so much more expansive than they had been led to believe from other preachers. And more than anything else that, that Jesus said in his entire sermon, it is the mention of Naaman the Syrian that caused the greatest offense. It, it pushes the congregation over the edge to the point that they want to push Jesus over the edge of a cliff. Why? Is it such a mistake to mention Naaman? Well, 2 Kings 5.1 tells us, Naaman was the commander of a foreign army. An enemy army that was in frequent conflict with Israel. And as verse 2 lets us know, Naaman had even taken a young girl captive on one of Aram's raids into Israel. And by the way, all of this precedes Jesus by about 800 to 850 years. And so in bringing up Naaman, Jesus is proclaiming that God had dealt even more graciously with a foreign enemy than he did with the people of Israel during that time. And Jesus' point is that God's providential care is not limited just to the people of Israel. With the clear implication that Jesus, or that God, will deal graciously with Israel's current and future foes as well. And I think we'd agree that this is an offensive message to hear when you're being oppressed by a foreign occupation force. It just is. Beyond this, the text from 2 Kings is scandalous for at least two other reasons. 
One, verse, uh, verse one of the reading proclaims that Israel's God, Yahweh, had actually given victories to an outright enemy of Israel. Let's just look at how the story begins in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him, Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. And whenever we see the word Lord in capital letters in the Bible, we are to understand that it is the actual name of Israel's God, Yahweh, that appears in the manuscripts of Scripture. But that name is too holy for observant Jews to say aloud, and so it's replaced. So already, long before Jesus, the writer of 2 Kings was proclaiming exactly what Jesus proclaims. That God's favor extends beyond the boundaries of Israel. And then the second thing that I think is problematic is it's clear that, that Naaman is not a believer in Yahweh at any point before he's healed of leprosy. He does convert after his leprosy is healed. Verse 15, which we didn't hear read this morning, tells us this. Then he, Naaman, returned to the man of God, Elisha, he and all his company. He came and stood before Elisha and said, Now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. He's converted. But what makes this part of the story is surprising is that Naaman did not convert before the leprosy is healed. And I think the assumption that we often make is that faith is a prerequisite for receiving God's grace and mercy. But that's clearly not the case here. The shorthand way that I hear it most often today is believe and receive. Believe and receive. But Naaman's healing flips that on its head. He receives, then he believes. And there's nothing in this whole story that suggests that he has to convert even after he's healed. He does it of his own volition. It is a response to God's healing grace that brings him into a life-giving relationship with God. One of the more scandalous practices of our denomination is the open table that we have for communion. We welcome anyone to receive communion. We don't, we don't check your credentials before you come forward to confirm that you're already a, a baptized believer in Christ. Why is that? Well, because we believe that God's grace and mercy are truly offered without any precondition. And it might just be that in being welcomed to the table, that might become that moment of grace where God meets someone in an unexpected way and brings them into a new type of relationship with a loving God. And I think it's for this reason 
that we should all be talking about Naaman a lot more than we do. Amen. I don't know if all of you uh, got your, your communion elements as you came in. If you didn't, I know that we've got youth on the ready to walk down the aisle and make sure you do get your communion elements. Now, I have to confess, uh, this is, uh, you know, ever since the pandemic began, this is my least favorite way ever of, of doing communion. I much prefer to have people come forward to receive the elements and partake. And we'll be getting there uh, soon enough. But there is one thing that I like about this. The thing that I like about this is we can all receive together. Symbolic of being one body brought together by the grace of Christ. So I invite you to wait until I tell you to partake the bread so that we all take it at the same time, at the little wafer. And I invite you to wait until I invite you to drink from the cup so that we can all do that together and be um, bonded together as the body of Christ. But let us remember that on the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, O God, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you. He gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in union with Christ's offering for us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us who have gathered here and on these gifts of the bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and life of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his sacrificial love. Through your son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. So now I invite you to peel back the upper layer that's transparent and take the wafer and let us share the body of Christ together. Let us uh, peel back the second layer and together let us drink from the cup of salvation. Part of being uh, one body gathered together in Christ is that we believe that those who have gone before us um, are the saints that surround the throne of God in heaven and that they are part of this body still. And today is the day that we celebrate All Saints Sunday. And we have a video that we're going to show. It begins with some words to invite you into a meditative space about, uh, about All Saints Day. And then there are some of the people from our congregation who passed into glory in the last year that we uh, will remind you of. 
And then following that, we are going to stand to sing for all the saints. And I will invite you at that point to light your candle and hold that up as we sing together. The switch is on the bottom. But, but wait until we stand to sing the song to light that up. But let us remember these uh, gracious saints who have gone before us. Thank you.